Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Well, good morning. Um, <clears throat> as Mesh said, my name is Ben, and I have had the privilege of growing up in this church. I've actually been here since I was in grade eight, I believe. Uh, member for like what 11 years throughout that time I've been involved in various ministries and missions trips I've had the honor of being the interim youth pastor actually before uh, Xavier came on uh, the church has supported me through so many things and it's actually funny I was thinking about it I think the last time I was up here was to ask for money so <laughs> this is this will be a little bit different um, yeah through mission trips and stuff like that I currently just finished my third year of doing my bachelor's degree at Tyndale in Toronto. I'm actually leaving for my fourth year next week, so if you have anything you'd like to respond to or comment, please do it today, because I won't be here next week. So, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the program that I'm in is the opportunity to research, and I don't, I, I don't know if a lot of other people enjoy it as much as I do, but just the paper writing and getting into these little bits of the word in order to understand it more and to see how everything fits together as a whole, as a complete whole. And the passage that we're going to look at today is one that I think, I'm not sure if I've ever heard anyone speak on it before, because it's it falls into this category within the Psalms called imprecatory Psalms. That's one of those big Bible school words that you learn, which essentially means that the author is calling upon God to destroy his enemies for him. It's It involves cursing it in well not like swearing but calling down god to take out whoever is opposing him and that's one of those things that i'm not sure that we talk about very much when i read it i kind of have this mindset of well i have these questions like how does this fit into the rest of the bible how does this fit into what the new testament teaches how does this fit into commands to love how does this how does this all work together and the funny part i've I was actually introduced to this psalm through uh, a website. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the Babylon Bee. They've Christian satire site. Some people like uh, it's a good time. Um, but they had a they had an article that I read about a year ago called, and it was just titled "Family Mistakenly Put Psalm 58:6 on Their Christmas Card," which is actually the title of the sermon today, I think it might be on the bulletin, oh God, shatter the teeth in their mouths. So, like along with the article, there's this, this picture of this smiling family with their Christmas sweaters and like snowflakes and stuff, and it says, oh God, shatter the teeth in their mouths. And that got me thinking, how exactly does this work? And it almost became kind of like a, a challenge in my head of how, how would I be able to explain this in such a way that it is helpful for the church? How does it fit into the rest of what the Bible says? So what began as a kind of, I thought of it as like a goofy little challenge, became uh, a big interest, especially when I keep in mind what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. How, how does this psalm fit into that? If we believe in the cross and grace and all these different things, how... How does a psalm like this fit in? So the goal today, I would say, is simply to demonstrate what we can learn from this passage 
that may make us feel uncomfortable. I know I was uncomfortable the first few times that I read it. And the number of connections that can be made between this psalm and the New Testament, because as I was studying, I there are a lot of them. So uh, I'm just going to start off. I'm going to read the first section, and then we're going to kind of walk through it. So the psalm begins, Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No. In your heart you devise injustice, and your hands mete out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. Uh, I actually forgot to mention, uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's in page 570. Hopefully you found it before I just kind of jumped in. Uh, so right up front, David, this is a Psalm of David. He makes it clear, he's confronting the wicked rulers that are throughout the kingdom. These are typically, they're people who are put in authority but don't have the true heart that God desires for his leaders. And uh, this word can be used in a few different ways. Uh, the ESV, I read from the NIV, the ESV actually says gods, which essentially means the same thing. It's used in a couple different areas, just referring to leaders. And kind of the way that David is using this, he can either be referring to uh, human judges, human leaders within Israel, or it could have a deeper meaning based on different textual traditions. I don't want to get into a ton of detail, but another way that it could be read is silent ones, or which could be referring to idols who are frequently said compared to God as those who don't speak compared to the God who does speak. So this, right from the beginning, David is kind of being ambiguous in what he is referring to and who he is addressing. So for the most part, we'll kind of see it as he's addressing rulers and judges, but kind of keep that reference to spiritual powers and spiritual darkness kind of in the back of your head because we're going we're gonna to come back to that a little bit later. And his purpose, he's confronting those in the kingdom who are taking advantage of the less fortunate. They are, they're dealing poorly with the poor. They're taking advantage of people who don't have any power or authority. And he cuts off any attempt to answer differently. And he says, no, you don't speak justly. You don't judge people with equity. You devise injustice and your hands meet out violence, which brings another connection or it brings a connection with the Gospel of Matthew, uh, where Jesus is talking about from a good tree comes, like from the heart comes your actions. He, there's a connection here between the heart and the hands, your belief and what you do. And they are essentially the opposite of what God requires from his, his leaders and his judges. Uh, David goes on to describe them as wicked from birth, which... That's in verse 3, which could mean that he's kind of broadening his scope a little bit because the rest of the Bible seems to, it addresses the fact that humanity is wicked from birth. So he's not necessarily just dealing with leaders, but he's dealing with just the wicked, this general group of those who are outside of the community of God, those who have been chosen by God and saved by God. Um, so yeah, that could broaden it 
Um, some people have used it to prove things like total depravity and stuff like that, but I think that's beside the point. Uh, he then likens their words to the venom of a snake and follows that with an image of a snake that has covered its ears in order for it to avoid hearing a potential charmer. I don't know, uh, does that sound like a funny image, like a snake trying to cover its ears so that it doesn't really work out? I saw somewhere, someone described it as the snake would like press its head up against the ground and then use its tail to cover the other side. I don't know, I think it's kind of weird, but this, this image is actually picked up throughout the New Testament. You see just the comparison of the wicked to snakes is taken up a few times by Jesus in the Gospels as he describes the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, the children of vipers. And, um, yeah, the children of vipers. And this image of the vipers stopping their ears so that they can't hear the charmer is actually picked up in Acts 7. Now, Acts 7 is where Stephen is giving his defense before the Pharisees. And right before, so at the very end, Stephen, he goes through this long speech, and then he says, you guys refuse to listen to him. Like, you refuse to recognize Jesus as the Christ. And uh, Luke, the author of Acts, describes the Pharisees as literally stopping their ears as they rush towards Stephen to stone him. They couldn't bear to hear the truth of the word of God that he was telling them. So in order to avoid it, they stopped their ears and kept themselves from listening. The wicked described here are incredibly obstinate in that they absolutely refuse to listen to correction, which I would take, this is an image of the wicked that is incredibly helpful when we think about evangelism because oftentimes we think about our training and all these different things as ways to make us better for it. But if we're not depending on God to change the hearts of those that we're talking to, we're, we're not going to get anywhere. I don't know, I've never seen anyone actually get argued into conversion. It always takes a work of the Spirit, and it takes faith. And, yeah, this describes the wicked as refusing to listen. And that kind of wraps up the first section. Uh, I think this section has been fairly straightforward, right? David calls out judges, calls them snakes who refuse to be charmed. Uh, I don't know. doesn't take a lot of explanation. But the next section is where things get uh, a little bit trickier because this is where the actual curses begin. So starting in verse 6, he writes, Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Tear out the fangs of these lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Before your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. Now, some of that imagery can be a little bit intense, I would say, uh, but take note of the attitude that David has towards those that he is confronting. He is asking God to take care of it. He isn't saying, give me the strength, give me the courage, give me the drive to destroy them. He's saying, God, I am trusting you to take care of this. He's trusting in God's justice and the wisdom that God has because only he's the one, like he's the only one who can truly 
God. Our judgment is skewed where God's judgment is perfect. Now, going into some of these verses, verse 6, where the title of today's sermon comes from, uh, his first request is that God break and tear out the teeth of the wicked, but there is something a little bit more significant going on here. Uh, just if any of you are interested in the original language, in the Hebrew, the words used in this sentence have very similar roots, where he talks about tear out the fangs or break the teeth. These words are like very similar. Uh, in a typical Old Testament Hebrew kind of phrase, like in Jonah, in the language, when the sailors are in the storm, it's said that they feared a great fear. That's like the literal translation. They feared a fear, prayed a prayer, and sacrificed a sacrifice. So to be more true to the words that are being used here, it the translation could be grind their grinders, basically chew on their teeth. But I don't know, that sounds a little bit awkward, so it kind of makes sense that translators wouldn't keep that in there. But what is, why is that significant? David is describing his, his adversaries as lions and poisonous snakes, two animals that hold tremendous power in their mouths. That is where the source of their strength is. I mean, sure, a lion has paws and stuff, but they kill through their mouth. That's essentially what he's getting at here. And this request, by saying grind the grinders of the enemy, he's asking God, take them out at their strongest point by using their strength against them. This is a way, like, yeah, he's one-upping their source of power. And in looking through this, uh, Augustine of Hippo recognize that this request is actually fulfilled in the New Testament in a couple of different ways. Note that when Jesus is confronted by Pharisees, they try to trap him in his words, and he, he answers in a way that renders them unable to speak. He, they don't know how to respond to what he's saying. He is essentially breaking the teeth out of their mouths. They were leading Israel astray through, through their words, through what they were saying and Jesus is rendering them completely useless. Augustine also takes this a step further by saying that this request is actually fulfilled through the cross. When you think about it, Satan is described throughout the Bible as being able, he has the power to lie, tempt, and accuse. These are all things that draw power from his words or use of language. And his power uh, and in looking at this, his, his power particularly to accuse, because he can, in Job, you see this court scene where Satan kind of strolls in, and he's like, well, what about Job? Like, there has to be something going on here. He can accuse before God. And before the cross, he would essentially be right, because he can say, these people don't deserve, or they deserve justice, they deserve wrath. But through the cross, the wrath of God has been satisfied on Christ instead of on us, so that power of Satan has been broken. The word of God died as a substitute for his people. In this verse is a request for the strength of the enemy to be destroyed in the same, in the same manner that it, that it corrupts. In the cross, the word of God, which is Christ, described that way in John, has rendered the word of Satan ineffective grind the grinders, break the teeth of our enemy. And, yeah, I think there's a lot of hope in that. There's a lot of hope in the enemy being rendered ineffective 
through the cross. And this is followed by the hope that the wicked will vanish like water and that their arrows will fall short, which vanishing like water, that's a very, it's a common metaphor used for just their courage running away. One thing that I've, I've seen a lot as a metaphor of like your inside become like water when you're just overcome with fear. And I think that's what, what he's referring to here. And then for their, the arrows falling short is a reflection of their weapons being rendered ineffective against the Lord, which it's interesting that the ESV actually hopes for the arrows to be blunted instead of falling short, which would still hurt, but it wouldn't have the, the same ability to kill, which I think is reflected in Satan's words being rendered less effective. Like, we can all testify that there are still temptations and there are still lies that we, we tend to believe, but they don't have the power to kill us anymore through the cross and through that grace. The next metaphor, uh, which is verse 8, involves a slug or a snail dissolving as it moves along. This is, I never really thought about that, but this is based on when you look, when you look at a snail as it moves along, it leaves a trail of slime behind it. When, way back in the day, it would look like it's essentially dissolving as it's moving. Like it's leaving pieces of itself behind, eventually getting smaller and smaller. This idea, just let them be like a snail that dissolves, is this idea that let them, let these wicked, almost let them continue because they're going to destroy themselves. Their own actions will take them out, kind of thing. Which, is also reflected in Romans 1, uh, 18 to 32, describing just this cycle of the wicked living in their ways and they become more blunted to what God is saying and then they keep going, they keep getting worse, they keep getting worse. And it could be making the other point that the wicked are like snails before the power and the might of God. I mean, think about the size of a snail versus the God who created the universe. There's there's comfort in that. There's, like our God is bigger than any enemy that we can face. And in the second part of this same verse shows it's David asking that the wicked be like a stillborn child. And um, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I wasn't really sure what to think. But when you, when you reflect upon that idea a little bit, I think it starts to make sense within the context of the rest of what's going on here. He's, like, he's been describing these wicked people in the first section, verses 1 to 5, even going so far to say that they were in their sinful condition since birth. And another way that the Bible describes people in this state is that they are dead, or spiritually dead. So if you're spiritually dead since your natural birth, it's just the next step to say, well, if you're not actually alive, but like there's this moment of birth, this moment of life, it's, it's essentially a stillbirth. And that's another, and that is an idea that's reflected, just the idea of spiritual death uh, in sin reflected in Romans 6. Um, the last verse in this section describes an attempt to start a fire to heat up a cooking pot. But before the fire can begin to heat up, they like can begin to catch, begin to heat up the meal. The the thorns, I believe he says, are swept away. 
when the key to this verse is the swiftness and the totality of God's intervention through his justice. I mean, this guy, he's like, okay, my food's going to get cooked. As soon as the fire sets, it's, it's gone. And this, this swiftness, this totality is reflected in Revelation 18, which describes the fall of Babylon after he's been allowed to reign for however long. And multiple times, it says, in a single hour, in a single hour, Babylon has fallen, emphasizing the swiftness that when God will act, in a completely visible and total way, the enemy doesn't stand a chance. It's going to happen quick. There won't be a struggle. It's just going to be God showing up and being like, this is what it is. You're done. Which leads us to the last couple verses, uh, verses 10 and 11. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded, for surely there is a God who judges the earth. This, this recounts the response of the righteous to all these enactments in light of God's victory. This isn't necessarily rejoicing in the pain of the wicked, that would be a little morbid, but in the revelation of God's character. This is essentially God showing up and saying, you, you were right to put your trust in me. You've like, we see him as just. This is just him pouring out his justice in a more visible way. And this, this kind of praise, this kind of response is also seen in Revelation 19, right after 18, surprise, surprise, where the fall of Babylon, and his people respond with worship. His people respond with, like, thanking him because these are the wicked who have persecuted his people, have persecuted his church, and God has responded with putting them in their place. So the people are like, all right, our God is, he is on our side. <coughs> after, after suffering for so long, God has shown up and vindicated them. And the image of the righteous dipping uh, their feet in the blood of the wicked, uh, in the ESV it says bathing, but most, like this is an image of just simply walking through this bloody battlefield. Like you're seeing the destruction of the enemy, you're kind of walking along, surveying it, and your feet would understandably be covered in blood. And the last verse, uh, mankind's response, is something of an interpretive key to the psalm, and that mankind will respond to the judgment by acknowledging that there is a God, and that there is a, a reward the righteous because so often even right now you would see people kind of mock and be like oh those guys are following God they're not really there's nothing to be gained from it it doesn't look like there's anything to be gained from it but in this revelation of God's glory and of his judgment then their eyes will be open to what the church those who know God already know so now that we've gone through Psalm 58 uh, there are a few points here and there that I think that we can learn from it. Uh, one way is that it teaches us another way to pray for the persecuted church. And that this is, this is an emotional response to injustice, crying out to God to make his justice known for the sake of his people. And throughout its history, the church has dealt with violence and oppression. And this is a way that we can come alongside, even the persecuted church now, 
to pray this on their behalf in order to ask God for intervention. Uh, it also reveals a little bit of tension in what we believe about God. Because so often we want to focus on these ideas of love and grace, and those are very important, and those are very key in what we believe, but there is a flip side to that. We can say that God is love, but God is also just. God is also wrathful. And that is ultimately poured out on the cross. And that God, like, we deserved his wrath, so it was poured out on the cross, but he also loved us to the point that he would take on that wrath himself. There's two sides of the same coin. And, but, how do we reconcile the command to love our enemies with a psalm like this? And I think the key to answering that is that David is not asking God for the strength to destroy. He's asking that God will deal with it. And he's trusting that God will deal with it in his own time. Up to that point, I think that we can still live with the mindset of loving our enemies, but we are trusting that God will act in accordance with his character. This psalm is also a reminder of what, what we deserve outside of Christ, because apart from the grace that we have been given through the cross, we deserve wrath, we deserve judgment. And our reflection on these words, I think, should lead us into, into repentance for the ways that we have failed, and also thankfulness for the price. Because we can look at this and say, well, this is a little bit of what I deserve, but by the grace of God, I have been spared from that. I have been made new. I have been made whole. Uh, you guys can come on. <laughs> it also expresses hope in God's justice. The psalm expresses David's confidence that although it appears as though unjust judges and the wicked are going to get away without punishment, they will face consequences for their actions. It's just a matter of time. And it it looks that way right now. People in authority and people in high places in the West here, are they seem to be oppressing. They seem to be having, having their cake and eating it too, living with no consequences, essentially. But if we believe that God is just, we can believe that at some point, he will take care of it. For now, our job is to endure, 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 and trust that God will take care of it in his time. And it's passages like these that, honestly, they inspire, they inspire me to study, uh, to look more into the Old Testament, more into these passages that might be, might be challenging. They might cause us, like, second thoughts, like, wait a minute, how exactly does this fit in? But when you dig a little bit deeper into it, you see there are a number of connections and ideas that are picked up in the New Testament, they're expanded on. And the middle, I think, verse 6, is fulfilled in the New Testament. It's fulfilled in the cross. And kind of my hope, my passion, is that uh, we, would, we would move forward to learn from psalms like this, but also to, to kind of expand our knowledge of the, of the God that we serve. Because there's, there's still a lot that we don't know. And there's still a lot that we can look into. So, I'm just going to pray to close. <laughs> Father, thank you, for, thank you for your word. Thank you that you revealed your character through, through a means that we can understand, well, begin to understand. I pray that we would, we would face the injustice that we see 
with the hope that you will deal with it in your time and that you would still move us to love and still move us to be sacrificial in that but that we wouldn't we wouldn't lose hope that we wouldn't that we wouldn't lose hope